Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you for pulling your chair up to this virtual cool kids table. I started this podcast five and a half years ago so that I could have access to really interesting people who were doing cool things in the world of business. And it has been an interesting ride through good times and bad times. I have had access to some really fascinating people, and I've learned one thing. Success leaves clues. And that's why I do this show for you and for me so that we can hear from these people who are who are doing the battle out there in the business world. Because when smart people tell you about the cool things they're doing, they leave you a little nugget, a theory, an idea, a concept, and we can pick those up and use them in our own business. Now, today's episode is the second in a series that I'm doing for the Association for Corporate Growth, the ACG Austin San Antonio chapter. Uh, full disclosure, my wife is the chapter administrator of ACG Austin San Antonio, and due to what's going on with COVID-19, they've had to cancel a number of their lunches, and therefore they won't be able to get their members together to have the knowledge that's usually shared by great business leaders in our two cities. So I have volunteered to use my podcast as a way to get some of these really great CEOs who are going to be speaking to ACG to come and share this information. Of course, once we get back to normal life and live luncheons are able to uh, be part of our norm again, ACG is going to have these people back speaking to you live. But in the meantime, we're going to talk today to Alan Natowski, and he is the CEO and president of Funware. And I'm really excited to hear more about what they do. Uh, they are a small publicly traded company on the NASDAQ, and they have an enterprise cloud platform for mobile. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about the growth of the company, about going public, and then... We're going to talk about what's going on in the world today and how they at Funware are tackling these this crisis. So, Alan, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you. Real pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. And thank you for giving your time to both my audience and the members of the Association for Corporate Growth. So, Alan, I don't read the, the bios that PR people send ahead when I have CEOs on my show. So can you tell us a little bit about your, your career background and what led you to Funware? Yeah, happy to do that. I'm uh, I'm the guy who's not supposed to be here, so it's always good stories for people that know that if uh, someone like me can do this, any of you out there can easily do this as well. Uh, it does require a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of effort, uh, and the ability to go through a lot of highs and a lot of lows and keep an even keel to uh, kind of roll with what's happening. Um, I'm actually the youngest of three boys and grew up uh, in Tucson, Arizona from K through 12. Uh, my parents gave me a super motivational speech when I was in uh, middle school and said, you know what, uh, we don't have any money for you to go to college, uh, but even if we did, uh, we wouldn't give you anything, uh, which uh, <laughs> was a pretty brutal thing to hear. Um, and I said, why in the world would you say that? And I said, well, if, if you don't earn your own way, uh, you're likely to not appreciate it. And so with that as a backdrop, uh, I'd always done reasonably good in school, got uh, a very good focus on realizing that doing well academically in high school was going to give me a chance to have an opportunity to go to college. Um, I am like an overachiever on many levels, so um, I ended up graduating as class valedictorian of my high school class. Uh, that gave me opportunities to stay in the state of Arizona to go to college. 
Um, it allowed me to do congressional uh, interviews. Uh, Senator McCain from Arizona happened to be uh, one who gave me a congressional nomination to the Air Force Academy. Um, I was given an appointment to West Point. Uh, and then having had a brother who went right out of high school and same story with them about college, he joined the Navy uh, right out of high school as an enlisted and got into the nuclear power program because uh, that was his option versus not being able to go to college directly at the time. And uh, as a result, he told me that, hey, if you're going to be great at what you do as an officer, ultimately, whether you went to a U.S. service academy or you went through ROTC in college, um, you know, both work. So I opted to go to the ROTC route. And after exploring Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine options, I opted to go to the University of Miami in Florida, uh, which is about as far away from mom and dad as I could get without leaving the country in a nice warm weather environment. Uh, but they had a unique program at the U uh, in the late 80s. Uh, I was there during the ESPN 30 for 30, the U part one. Uh, so I think we lost two games in four years in football and got used to putting the U on your chest and be hated by everybody. Uh, <laughs> I went there uh, because they had a unique program where if you used your ROTC scholarship, which covered all the tuition and the books, and it gave you a, a magical $100 a month in, in salary. Uh, that was what we had to live on. Uh, they also had a supplemental program to do your room and board. And so I and many others from all over the country that were probably overachievers that never even considered going to the University of Miami. Back then, it was more like suntan U as opposed to where it is now <laughs> uh, as a sort of relatively nice, small private institution of you know, a little over 10,000 students. Um, I went there for four years and I got a degree in industrial engineering and I was commissioned as an aviator in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, really, it was start, supposed to start with an aviation uh, branch, uh, but I was given an educational delay because I did so well at Miami. I was the top graduate in both the industrial engineering department and the military science department. Uh, what I found is I had no money uh, and there was a lot of people there that came from a lot of uh, privilege and background. Uh, but I found that uh, no one quite wanted to work as hard as I was willing to work to do well. Mm. Uh, things like food and sleep didn't really matter. It was, I want this more and I will put in whatever effort I have to, to outperform. And so as a result, I got commissioned uh, the same day I graduated. I was granted an educational delay from the U.S. military, and I went to graduate school. Um, I applied to the top five industrial engineering graduate schools in the country, uh, which at the time, uh, for about 20-some years, it's been Georgia Tech number one, uh, groups like Michigan, and then you see Stanford and Berkeley, of course. So I was uh, uh, shocked when I was admitted to all of them. Um, I had the option to go to Stanford or Berkeley or Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech was the only one that said, hey, we'll give you a graduate research assistantship. We'll give you in-state tuition because it's a public school. And it was ranked number one, uh, whereas Stanford and Berkeley said, hey, uh, you pay for your master's. We'll think about it for your Ph.D. And again, I didn't have any money. Uh, so I went to Georgia Tech and I got my Master of Science in Industrial Engineering at Georgia Tech. And then because I had two engineering degrees, the uh, needs of the Army kicked in. They yanked my pilot slot, broke my heart because I thought I was going to be an attack helicopter pilot. I was motivated in high school by the original Top Gun. Now I can't wait to see the one that's going to come out. Now. Yeah, that, that new one's about to release. We'll see We'll yeah. see if it lives up to it. I'm, I'm of that age where I was in college when it came out. And I'm a little skeptical of the new one. 
Yeah. So I, I don't know what to expect, but uh, it's funny to see uh, I can bookend, you know, two top guns from when it motivated me to try to get in the military and be a pilot. Uh, and then now we'll, we'll see where the other side of it is. But, uh, you know, it was, it was heartbreaking when I lost my opportunity to uh, be a pilot. Um, but I did get put in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, that was uh, the basis of two industrial engineering degrees. Um, in between undergrad and grad school, I had to kill a summer and couldn't be on active duty yet. So I worked at Hewlett Packard in Southern California as an intern. Gave me some experience in, uh, you know, what goes on in, in the world of, of the real world. Uh, and then when I went to uh, finish everything after grad school, uh, I had about four months. I had to wait to start active duty. So I was a substitute teacher, K through 12, with a focus on middle and high school. And then I went on active duty. Um, along the way, I did airborne air assault uh, ranger school. Uh, which I couldn't believe how the hell did I end up in ranger school after I was supposed to get eight hours of sleep to be a pilot, you know, <laughs> I was getting like no food and getting just messed with. So ranger school is the one thing that I was very blessed. Um, I, I realized that the only thing worse than doing each of the four phases once was doing it more than once. Uh, Cause you could be peer reviewed uh, to recycle. You could be medically recycled. You could not perform well enough and get recycled. So again, um, I did something unusual. I love to talk and, and communicate with people, but I went to ranger school. I shut my mouth. I did what I was supposed to, and I worked my butt off to make sure that when I was in charge, I did the right things. And when I wasn't in charge, I tried to do everything I could to help people in charge be successful. Uh, that made me uh, you know, liked uh, by my peers. Uh, they would call on me for anything, and I would do anything I could to help them. Uh, and because that helped them be successful, I you know never got peer reviewed. Um, I thankfully was not medically injured. And then when I was in charge, it was much easier because everyone knew how hard I worked for them. They might uh, you know not perform at the same level for others, but they sure performed for me um, because I gave up my food or sleep or anything I could to help them be successful. So I was one of about the six or 8% that made it through all four phases of ranger school consecutively and graduated. And then my reward for that was to get deployed to Korea uh, for the 1994 nuclear weapons inspections in North Korea and a one year you know, stint on the DMZ. Uh, I was Kim Jong-il, not Kim Jong-un back then. Just as messed up then it was it was now. <laughs> say, welcome to the real world, you know, and uh, so I served there, did well, uh, and then I, my, as my reward, I guess, for a year on the DMZ, I was uh, given Schofield Barracks Hawaii for my follow-on assignment, and I finished out my military career after going from second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain, uh, there at Schofield Barracks. We had done, you know, one of the largest Japanese self-defense force deployments. Uh, there were deployments that went on. Uh, in Thailand for training, down in Haiti for, you know, when Aristide was in charge and there was a lot of problems in Haiti. So, uh, you know, there's nothing that helps you grow up faster than being, uh, you know, in your early 20s and having people look at you to lead them, even if they are older than you, more experienced than you. Because uh, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And much like we're dealing with what we are with COVID-19 right now, uh, there's a relatively big difference between training for war and being in war. There's a big difference between training for, you know, an 
a pandemic or an unexpected crisis and being in it and having to lead someone through it. And so I think that both myself as CEO and, and our, uh, you know, my uh, colleague, Randall Crowder, who's our COO, you know, he did the West Point route. We're both ex-Army Rangers. We both deployed and served domestically and abroad. And uh, at the end of the day, it gives you good context because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm in Austin here today. So I will eat, sleep. I will see my family. Nobody's shooting at me, <laughs> you know, as, as this can be. You know, I always say our, our parents and grandparents were called to war back in the day. Uh, we're being asked to sit our butt on a couch for, for a while. So I, I think we can make it, you know. Uh, and so when we go through with that context, I found uh, as I grew up, uh, as I, you know, probably came from a, you know, whether you call it a middle lower class family or an upper lower class family, my, my parents hadn't been to college. My dad was a Mason, so I learned very hard manual labor as a kid realize that sucks. Uh, let's find a different path. My mom was an assistant at a junior high library and, and my parents, uh, you know, reinforced to me and my brothers that uh, this is the United States of America. Uh, we can be anything we want. We can do anything we want. If you're willing to put in the work, get off your butt, put in the sacrifice, um, and, and work things forward. And so the, the net of how things kind of played out, is that I ended up getting recruited. Uh, after I was married, I went to go visit uh, my wife's family for the first time uh, at, at that time. Uh, we had never met each other's family before getting married. Uh, it was too expensive to try to get everyone to Hawaii while I was still there and on active duty. Thought we would do a ceremony and things always happen, but um, someone came up to me as a recruiter at uh, San Francisco airport at a bar. I guess I had short hair and they literally, I thought I was being punked at the time. They came up and said, hey, um, sorry for interrupting. I was wondering if you could miss your flight, please. And I thought it was a joke. Like, what are you talking about? I said, okay, I'm a headhunter for Northern Telecom. Uh, have you ever heard of them? And I said, well, I grew up in Tucson. They sponsored the, the Tucson Open on the PGA, <laughs> uh, Northern Telecom Tucson Open at the time. Uh, but I said, that that's all I know about it. So they explained it a little and they said, I go, I don't understand. Why, why are we having this conversation? And they said, we, we'd like you to interview for a position. And I said, well, I'm, I'm getting on a flight in like less than an hour. It's, I can't do that. And they're like, no, 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 we'll, we'll pay for your flight. I'm like, what? I'm like, uh, and where would we stay? Like, we'll get you a hotel. So how would I get to the interview? We'll get a car. And I'm like, are you, you kidding? I'm like, what would my wife do? So we'll, we'll give her a few hundred bucks and she can go shopping. Then I'm like, are you being serious? Like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. And uh, and finally, I ran out of excuses because I even told them, look, I can't even be off active duty for like another you know, 12 to 16 months, depending on the timing. And uh, they said, no problem. So I missed my flight. I did an interview for about six hours telling them how foolish I thought it was that they were interviewing me. Uh, and lo and behold, by the time I got back to my uh, my rented place in Hawaii, I had a job offer waiting for me. Uh, and turned out I was part of uh, uh, an experiment of sorts. They hired 50 ex-Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine officers. They knew how much we made. They knew how much to offer. They knew the government would relocate us. They gave us no equity because we didn't even know what that was. <laughs> it was a $3,000 sign-on bonus because that felt like millions of dollars. 
And uh, ultimately, I joined the new product introduction group and the operations part of Northern Telecom under their enterprise switching business, back with the old PBXs and things, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. I, and then that group of 50 uh, basically became some of the most amazing people I, I ever met. Nortel collected all this talent. They were asking us if, you know, oh, can you manage this group of five? And I'm like, okay, I managed 8,000 in my last assignment. I think I got this. Uh, we were all used to working long hours for little money. Um, and so we came in and just really did exceptionally well. Started getting promoted internally very rapidly. Then we had people rated the department for talent externally. So we had about three people get uh, pulled to Serent. And then ultimately that was a, you know, back in the tech days, that was early, like late 98, 99, 2000. You know, Cisco bought that company for about $6 billion. Uh, so they ended up going to Cisco and, and cranked from there. A, a few went to Shasta Networks, which got bought by Nortel and did a round trip back, but <laughs> probably finally a bit better off. Um, one left to Aspect Communications and then went off to uh, basically help start this thing called Salesforce and help grow it. Um, another group ended up going in to create all sorts of positions of chief technology officer, chief executive officer of different companies. Uh, me uh, and our CTO now at, at Funware, uh, we worked together at Nortel. We started a company, built it, sold it to Cisco Systems uh, in November 2000. We did two contingency business model. What would happen if we took this software as a, um, a, a as a license and we back then called it, what if we created a hosted application service provider? Now it'd be called the cloud. Uh, and things like, uh, how would you sell that to businesses as a subscription? That would look a lot like RingCentral and Vonage and things like that now. Uh, so first company we built and sold to Cisco. Um, the first contingency model was built and sold to level three communications. Um, another contingency model out of that became, we had to create a networking box with quality of service, traffic shaping to make voice over IP work. If you remember back in the day, this works really well right now, but it wasn't like that. Um, we right. had to in fact, we, we, take, we take Zoom and all of this stuff for granted, but it was a long path to get here. Yeah, it was real-time voice video data and, and that was hard. And so we created a box. Of course, you can't have a communication service provider and a network equipment company. So that company was called Edgewater Networks. Uh, that became a standalone, and uh, in the last couple of years, ultimately, it was purchased by Ribbon Communications, which is on NASDAQ. And so, we had multiple things out of that, and then along the way, we learned a lot of VoIP. So, we you know, made I made the, one of the first angel investments in Minex Holdings, uh, which changed its name to Vonage, uh, and then was involved in helping Vlad and Vlad at Ring Central when they were doing about $4 million in revenue. And it's fascinating to watch a company go from four million in revenue to I don't know where they're at today, but they're fifteen billion plus in market cap on the New York Stock Exchange, post Sequoia, post Coastal Ventures, post Cisco Investments, Goldman Sachs IPO, and so it's it's amazing, you know, to see what happened. Um, and while uh, I was recruited into Silicon Valley, um, I got tired of being called an engineer because I really didn't feel like one. So I got an MBA from UC Berkeley along the way, simultaneous to building my first company. So I think in 1999, I probably averaged about an hour of sleep. Um, I actually built a company from the ground up 
uh, ultimately to its acquisition. Simultaneously finished my MBA and had my first child all in the same year. So when people say, you know, it's unfair or this can't happen, like me and our, our co-founder of, of that company put our house as collateral. So I used a VA loan for a dollar down to buy the first house, then put it as collateral for our Dell equipment. And so I'm not saying that that's normal or that's preferred or anything like that. But what I'm saying is like, you can be married and have kids and do a startup and you have to decide how important is sleep and food in the process of what am I willing to work through um, no matter how difficult during a window of time. Because if you don't like your job, get a new one. You don't like your career, change it. You know, if you want to be a doctor, go get educated to do it. Whatever you want. That's the beauty of this country. Well, in, in listening to your story, and I've just been, been sitting here with my mouth open because it's a fascinating sort of life journey. Uh, it's been a combination of really, really hard work and a little bit of good fortune along the way. Sure. And so, you know, they say when luck meets hard work, that's where the magic happens. And so clearly, Alan, you are the example of that. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of guessing your age, we're about the same age, which means that most of this all took place from, call it the early 90s forward. You've also done this, and I kind of lost count of how many companies you started, but working, uh, you know, uh, in, in corporate America and then starting what my count says maybe five companies, you have seen a lot of ups and downs along the way, and there have been big troughs in our economy where you've still been able to build and sell or build and, and, and take public some of these companies uh, that you've sure. been with. So that's actually really inspiring in times like this. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and I always said, if you can be um, lucky versus good, be lucky. Uh, but if you can try to be good and work really hard uh, luck can somehow appear, you know, your, your, your goal in a company is to exist, to survive, to move forward, to fight. Um, you know, there's a great Al Pacino uh, uh, scene, you know, when, when he's playing a football coach and screaming a motivational thing of who's willing to scrape and claw and fight for that one inch and how you know, in a football game or in life, everything around us is these inches away. And um, that's really true. Um, it's also very true. I've seen a lot of things going around with you know, Theodore Roosevelt quotes lately about being in the arena. Yep, my favorite. In fact, that's been my favorite quote for like 20 years. I used to have a plaque yeah. of it on my desk and Brene Brown just made it really famous with her Netflix special. Right. And uh, the other day I was like, I've, that's been my favorite quote for 20 years. Right. And, and the one that supplements that to me is uh, the thought process of, of coming up with ideas and starting companies and growing them is, you know, the, the age old quote that says, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. Uh, and we've seen that in about every company we've ever played with when you're trying to look around the corner and predict the adoption of voice over IP or the migration from circuit to packet. In Funware's case, when we started, we've seen this before. There was 5 billion feature phones. They're, they're not going to bridge to a smartphone. You just throw them away and you start over with these iPhones and Android devices. So we, we've tried to find a way to see what's coming. Then you want to be like Goldilocks, that you're not too early, you're not too late. Um, and a lot of things is a combination of luck and market adoption and you know, events that happened, but you're right. I, I finished as an undergraduate in 1991. 
1992, I finished graduate school. I was in the military from that point through late 96. Then I uh, got to Silicon Valley and I was in Silicon Valley uh, during the great boom of tech and the internet uh, from 1996 in August when I had never even been on the internet in my life. Um, I didn't know anything about circuit switching or packet switching or picking up a phone was called off hook. Like I, I didn't know any of this stuff. I just had to learn. Uh, but I was there from 96 to 01 through the boom and the bust. I then moved uh, down to Southern California from Northern California and Newport beach uh, and lived there and up to the, uh, you know, the big housing crunch. Uh, funny a side story is I, I decided that we were moving to Austin where we're at now uh, after Thanksgiving of 2007, because over Thanksgiving, I kept meeting more and more people um, that really had never been to college uh, that seemingly were in the title business, the mortgage industry. They were selling real estate. They were operating commercial and residential stuff. Um, and they didn't know what a basis point was. Uh, or they were yeah, driving that's, that's, a, that's a little frightening. Yeah, so, so I couldn't quite put my finger on what was going on, but I was thinking, if you're in the mortgage industry and you don't know what a basis point is, uh, or you can't describe your, your job and you, you say, oh, I'm in a title company and, and I go to our suites at the Anaheim you know, Ducks or the Angels and I entertain our clients, I'm like, yeah, but what do you do? And they said, just that. And I'm like, well, something isn't right. So, But, but boy, what a great job if you could get it. Amen. Uh, so what I did is at the time I talked to my wife and said, you know, right after Thanksgiving and more, you know, hanging out and meeting more people and doing some barbecues and just enjoying the, the holiday. You know, that Monday I said, we need to list our house for sale. And she said, why? And I said, you know, I can't even tell you exactly why, but we need to list it. So we listed it. But summer it. 2008 is coming. Yeah, well, I didn't know that, but I, I guess I was sort of starting to feel like something from my time in the Valley during the tech boom and bust, uh, because we sold our first company to Cisco, actually, uh, in November of 2000. We were accused of doing the last deal in Silicon Valley, because March of that year was when it really blew up. The company that we ultimately, uh, we had an antivirus and security software company as well, but I was on the board and investor, and we ultimately sold that. October of 2002 to Internet Security Systems, which was on NASDAQ. Subsequently, after that, they got bought by IBM, uh, where all their assets are at now. Uh, but that was literally the bottom of the market at that time, October 2002. Uh, and then, you know, in 2004 was the, the service provider to level three. Um, the one that I talked about with Edgewater, that didn't happen literally till just a couple of years ago, you know, in, in 2018, after all that time. So when you kind of trace through the lineage of all this in that housing part, um, you know, we listed our home on a Monday by you know, seven days later, we already had a buyer. We deferred closing till the first business day of 2008 so that you didn't create taxable events. Uh, we rented a place on the beach for about six months waiting for our kids, uh, which we had four of to finish school. And then we moved the summer of 2008 to Austin, Texas. I guess the only thing we could have done better uh, was probably to rent for the six months first at Austin, Texas, and then buy a house. Um, but coming from California to <laughs> to Texas felt like a pretty different thing because the cost wasn't quite as bad, right? 
So uh, I've got more questions for you. We're going to run a little long on this interview. I hope you can. I hope you can stick with me yeah. here. But first, I need to thank uh, the sponsors of the ACG Austin San Antonio chapter uh, because uh, they wouldn't be able to do the great things they do without their sponsors. So at the diamond level, they have Weaver, Dykma, and Insperity, and then at the platinum level is Higher Better, and then they have their alliance partners, which are AEM and Texas Military. Officers Association. All right, so back to you, Alan. Let's talk about Funware for uh, a yeah. quick minute. So when did you start Funware and what was the journey of growing Funware and how did you go public? Yeah, so right after we uh, uh, ended up moving uh, summer of 2008 to uh, Texas, um, I originally thought we were gonna you know, join the Central Texas Angel Network and maybe do some investing and as I kind of met the community there, ironically, uh, you know, there was a gentleman named Hall Martin, who was the first, you know, CTN director before he went off to do other things. And then Randall Croder, who's now our COO here at Funware, was the director right after Hall. So Randall and I met early on at that time. Uh, as Randall likes to say, he met me and said, there's no chance that he's not going to be doing something operational. <laughs> And I found that um, when I first met CTAN and, and the folks that were doing investment, I found that the most interesting things that, that, that I learned about were less about who was presenting because there was a lot of people that were net new entrepreneurs and you know the, the ecosystem was a little bit less mature than it is now here in Austin compared to you know, Silicon Valley, of course, and what I was used to in California. So I found that the people in the audience, I was a lot more interested in what their deals were and what they were spending their time on. Um, but ultimately I, I joined CTAN, did that for a bit, and I met some people through that process. And ultimately we founded Funware uh, February 23rd of 2009. Uh, and the other thing that happened in 2008, if you remember, is that's when the iPhone came out. Uh, so we started watching and said, okay, well, what happens if none of the carriers are in charge of our phones anymore, but we are? What happens if 5 billion feature phones go in the garbage? So what we did is we said, I think we've seen this before when we were looking at the transition from circuit to packet switching and from, you know, technically it was called time division multiplexing to internet protocol and all that kind of craziness. So what we ended up doing is we started Funwork. Um, we were going to use the name Funware with an F instead of a PH. Uh, turned out Funware was viewed as applications that exhibit game-like mechanics and behavior. And it was owned by Hasbro for the purposes of games. Uh, so we played on that a little with Funware with a PH. And we said, you know what, this time, you know, we're going to set out to reach every human being on the planet that has a device touching a network through their favorite brands, their favorite networks and shows and teams, all through those applications that happen to run Funware software. And if we do this right, and we can support the Fortune 1000 and help them to engage and manage and monetize their mobile audiences on iOS and Android, uh, we thought that we could build a very, very big company and that the tech space would say, you know what, there's hardware, there's software, there's firmware, and there's funware. And that was the nature of what set us up. Uh, when we said things like that, when you say something like, I'm going to reach every human being on the planet with a device touching a network, and they're going to be using our software, uh, most people get pretty uh, skeptical, to say the least. 
it didn't matter what our track records were. It didn't matter that our CTO and I have worked together for a couple decades through all these companies. Didn't matter that while I was playing the business guy and he had his uh, undergraduate degree in uh, computer engineering from uh, UC San Diego, followed by a master's in computer science from Stanford. Uh, it really didn't matter what our backgrounds were. It was just, you're out of your mind, right? That is way too ambitious. You know, you always say they want to hear these big, hairy, audacious goals and these big ideas. Until they're too big and hairy. Yeah, when you, when you say that to people, it scares the shit out of them, honestly. They're like, uh, oh, you're going to try to be all things to all parties, so you're going to be nothing to anyone. You're going to try to boil the ocean, young man, which is interesting because I was in my 40s and that felt kind of patronizing. <laughs> you know, but I learned about entrepreneurship from, you know, the original Silicon Valley Angel Fund run by Casey McGlenn, Bob Bozeman, and Ron Conway, one of the ultra super angel investors of our life, who were the ones that not only when they made an investment in your company, they brought all the portfolio companies and the leadership together and it effectively taught you, instructed you, demanded of you to know what your role is as someone who has been given investment from the community of Silicon Valley. And your role and the importance of what you do for the rest of your life, because someone had the ability to back you and support you, not dissimilar that Steve Jobs first reached out to you know, the Hewlett Packard uh, organization uh, and you had direct communication to him as a child. And even in his dying days, what did he do? He met with Mark Zuckerberg, even though he didn't like Facebook, because that's what you're supposed to do. And we were taught what we were supposed to do to give back. You know, this, this kind of conversation is always fun for me, but this is one of the reasons that I do these things. It's one of the reasons I've gone to Inc., at their awards ceremony a day early to volunteer my time for, you know, programs that they put in place for, you know, military active duty, their families, former veterans and others that want to start for-profit or not-for-profit organizations. And it's important to find ways to give back and to share experiences and to see, you know, it's was, it was painful enough getting the living crap beat out of you, punched in the face, going through all these nightmares but if you can help someone else avoid even one or two of them, uh, then that's worth it. And so that's why these things are important. For Funware, you know, we uh, ended up doing some incredible things from 2009 uh, onward. Uh, we're a little over 11 years old, but during our first five years, uh, by the time we qualified to have the trailing years you need for Inc., uh, you know, we were one of the fastest growing companies and debuted, I think, at number 40 or 41 or something on the Inc. 5000 of the fastest growing companies. We ultimately stayed on that for five consecutive years. And when you take the trailing couple of years after five years of growth, those numbers have to get really, really big to try to keep the percentages of growth high. Uh, and we were blessed to have done it five consecutive years, which means you're in the honor roll category of Inc., uh, which they designate of only about 8% of the companies in the history of the Inc. 5000 have ever achieved five years of growth. When we debuted on the Deloitte & Touche list as the fastest growing companies in North America, we debuted at number four. 
number four, which is breathtaking. Uh, our growth rate during their window of comparison was like 18,800% during that window. And that is where you're holding on for dear life. Um, what we believe is we're going to do what we think is right. And as soon as our customers stop paying for what we're offering, we'll agree with the cynics. Because I was told, despite all of our track record and success, Funware was built for the first five years on $20 million of angel money. There were no corporate strategics. There were no venture capitalists. It was all people that followed us in deals and over time almost said, here, we want to invest. Tell us what you're doing later. But that didn't happen overnight. That happened after you know, making in two years, 25 times their money on our first company and on and on and on. So let's move to when you when you did your IPO because you did it a little different. So I used to work for uh, a financial printer and I used to be the marketing director for one of the big corporate tech law firms. So mm -hmm. I know a lot about the traditional way that you take a company public, uh, but you guys did it a little different. What what happened when Funware went public? Right, so, so one thing is in the first five years, it was 20 million of angel. The second five years, we finally did not one, but two institutional raises. Uh, first one was about $30 million. We got three corporate strategics, Cisco Systems, Samsung, World Wrestling Entertainment. Um, and by the way, I went to school with Dwayne The Rock Johnson before he was called The Rock. It was Dwayne. Um, and he couldn't get on the field. You know why? Because the two guys in front of him were Warren Sapp and Russell Maryland, who ended up in the NFL Hall of Fame. <laughs> I, I, think, I think Dwayne did okay. I think he did. So we got the corporate money. We got some venture money from Firsthand Technology Value Fund, uh, Fraser McCombs Ventures and Maxima Ventures in Asia and some others. And then we did a final $50 million raise leading into when we were trying to go public. Um, that 50 million came, uh, 20 of the 50 came from Kazana, which is a sovereign wealth fund out of uh, Malaysia. Uh, we took uh, probably another 10 million from the Philippine long distance telephone company as a corporate strategic. We added more from Wavemaker Partners, which had been involved as angels early on, but that's really the Draper network with Tim Draper. Uh, and Wavemaker is one of the nine Draper network portfolio companies. So along the way, our, our valuation did small step ups into the right. Um, so we, our last round, our first institutional round was probably 90 million pre, 120 million post on $30 million raised. After that other 20 million was slowly up into the right as we were growing very aggressively. Um, the last private round was 200 million pre, 250 million post. Uh, so pretty modestly valued by relative kind of unicorn standards in our performance because we were based in Austin, Texas, even though we had offices in Southern California and South Florida. Uh, and then we had a couple groups approach us. Uh, one was Draper Oakwood, because we were part of the Draper Network Group, and they were doing their first SPAC, which is called a Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And a SPAC is the same thing that someone like Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway used years ago to get public. It's a trading shell with no operating history. Uh, there may be money, there may not. And then there's you as a private company, and you structure a merger as opposed to an initial public offering, you end up using an S4 registration statement tied to a merger versus an S1 tied to a traditional IPO. Um, traditional IPO is you're selling a piece of the company as a financing and branding event, and then you trade. In our case, you did a merger, and at the conclusion of the merger, you open for trading. So slightly different, 
And in our case, our deal looked a lot more like um, a direct listing because we really didn't take any money. We took about $400,000 as part of the transaction. But in reality, uh, we probably inherited more debts and other things that were tied to it to get the listing. Uh, so what we did um, is we worked through that. We looked at Draper Oakwood. We looked at uh, what was called Stellar Acquisition. Uh, we compared the deals. We opted for the Stellar Acquisition one. Um, and we went through a process for virtually all of 2018 to get it, the S-4 registration statement effective. Um, it became effective in the middle of November of 2018. Lo and behold, what happened in Q4 of 2018, the market jumped off a cliff uh, and was just plummeting all the way through the balance of the year. So it became the week before Christmas uh, that year, market was down 600, 700, 800. Uh, the day before Christmas, if you remember in 2018, market was off 1,000. Then we were supposed to celebrate Christmas on a Tuesday then on Wednesday, we closed our deal with about five minutes to spare before the expiration of the special purpose acquisition company on NASDAQ. And then the day after that, our reward for closing our deal was the government shutdown. And for the next 35 days, uh, we had the shutdown of the government. But sadly, the day after the government shutdown, what happened? We opened for trading on NASDAQ. So what you had was this crazy sequence of events where you call you know, the SEC to get more shares available in the free trading public float uh, and you get a message. Hi, this is the SEC. We're not <laughs> right now, but if you'll call back when the government's not shut down, we'll be happy to help you out. And so the net result is we only ended up with 144,000 shares in a free trading float off of 39 million shares because everyone else was in a six-month lockup. And that 144,000 was based on the 400,000 by law that stayed in our deal. Uh, later in 2019, these laws have changed for exchanges in the SEC. Uh, we call them the funware rules, even though we <laughs> wish they never happened and God forbid they shouldn't have. Because we, in January of 2019, became the top performing asset on the planet of anything physical, virtual, any exchange, any company, our company ended up becoming a short squeeze because people legitimately tried to buy. Market makers cross trades with a short to provide liquidity, which is what they do. And then they didn't realize because it was during the vacation period and the shutdown period, wow, there's no shares. So they have a choice when you're a broker dealer or a market maker. You either settle by going into the open market and buy to close that T plus two, or you get sanctioned by FINRA and you could lose not just for Funware, but all of Wall Street, your ability to make markets and trade. And what that meant is our deal was done at basically $301 million, so a small uptick. That's where we started, about $10.60. And within two weeks, you don't wanna guess what happened. We went from 10 to 25 to 50 to 100, 50, 200, 250, 300, 400, 500, 550. And now we're trading at a $17.5 billion market capitalization <laughs> against a $300 million deal that was a couple weeks old. And that should have never, ever, ever happened. And so we have lived through the craziest things in the world but 
the nature of going public through a special purpose acquisition company, you know, you can see this right now if you went and looked at Virgin Galactic. It's what Richard Branson did with social capital, same exact idea. They had a recent spike like crazy, not for any of the reasons we were talking about, but it became very popular on Robinhood and millennials that wanted to trade. And you saw it go from a you know eight, nine dollar thing all the way up into the 30s. Now it's gone kind of round trip and back. Um, but we have lived through, you know, all the kind of fun and craziness because also what goes up to 550 must ultimately come back. And we even lived through in late March. What happens when you have warrants priced at $11.50, $11.50 a share, and you have a stock trading at $50 or $100 or more per share? You would normally arbitrage. I'm going to buy you know, the warrants. I'm going to short the common, and I'm going to arbitrage the difference, and we're going to have efficient markets. Except everyone on Wall Street realized the same thing. And so in late March, uh, we ended up having five consecutive dra- days of hitting the short circuit breaker. And we actually triggered reg SHO, which is for what they call the threshold securities list for naked shorting. Because even though we only had those 144,000 shares outstanding, guess what? We were trading five, 6 million shares a day of shares that didn't exist. Has anybody ever thought about making a movie out of your life? You know, it would almost be impossible to believe. <laughs> and, I, and I say that. <laughs> That's you know, what I was thinking. Use the last four days in as an example, which uh, I think you're going to appreciate, uh, as we, uh, you know, did something incredible. So when you talk about what do you do in crisis management situation, you know, we were in the middle of trying to do a financing deal uh, before COVID-19. We had been working for quite a while on this deal. We actually kept working through the deal through every announcement, every quarantine, every shutdown, and literally last Friday, last Friday, we successfully closed a $3 million financing package with a new investor. And probably one of the proudest accomplishments of many of our professional lives, looking down every material adverse change you could imagine, staring down, shutting down countries, staring down the market plummeting off a cliff. There's no reason to get that done. We worked tirelessly to make sure that we got to a conclusion. And you know, any investor could have said, hey, this is pretty messed up. We're just going to pause. Right. Oh, and, and a ton of things. Shut. Everything is paused for, for small businesses, large businesses, public businesses. I mean, there's the, the pause button is getting a lot of taps. You got it. And so what did we do? We successfully focused on the problem at hand. We managed through that nightmare to get to a closing. We close on Friday. Um, Monday, we announced through 8K and a press release that we closed our financing. And one of the interesting things that happened along the way, because you really just can't make this stuff up, truth is stranger than fiction. But if this ever is a movie, then guess what happens? As the closing conditions, you actually get the outbound wire from the investor and the deal's done. You have the Fed tracing number, all normal. The money's gonna show up in your bank because it's a wire. But what happened in parallel last week is there was a cyber attack on one of the largest service providers of the United States wiring system and the banking system. 
And guess what happened? All inbound and outbound wires went into the abyss. And that service provider that serviced hundreds of banks, our bank happened to be one of them. So no money shows up on Friday. The wire can't be done on Monday. It also couldn't be done yesterday. And literally for five straight days, you couldn't even remotely plan for the fact of in the history of the United States, has the wiring system ever gone down? Uh-oh. So we please, did have- Please, to get please tell me the money has arrived by now. Today, literally <laughs> earlier today before this podcast. And we, you still showed up on time to do the podcast. Yeah, because like I said, you know, when you're dealing with weird things, uh, Murphy's laws of closings, Murphy's laws of financial markets, I learned Murphy's laws of you know, combat, right? <laughs> Anything that could possibly go wrong is gonna go wrong. So your goal as a leader is to game theory. If you get a PhD in any one thing, game theory is it. The idea is to plan for what can I do financially to assist company that involves equity, it involves convertible debt, it involves debt. Now it involves all these programs tied to what is or isn't coming out of Congress or executive order or Federal Reserve. That involves things like disaster loans from the Small Business Administration. It involves all this stuff that you and I probably don't even know what was approved yet or we're waiting for it to be approved. So you're in a fluid situation to say, how do I address balance sheet obligations? How do I address your people? Then you have to deal with how do I address operations? And I always, you know, I tell my kids, I uh, had been married for over you know, 20 years. I never thought I'd get divorced, but did. I never thought I'd get remarried, but I did. And the end result was actually having seven kids, five daughters and two sons, uh, where one is a uh, uh, basically a, a, a junior at the University of Miami, one is a sophomore at Texas A&M, uh, one is a freshman at the University of Oregon, three are about to graduate high school this year, here in a month or two, and then the last one is, you know, finishing eighth grade, about to go to high school. So when you go through that, you've got kids getting kicked out of their dorm rooms, you've got all of their lives being blown up for three in college, you have the K through 12 getting shut down. I, I have I have a high school senior. I have a high school senior as well. And and everything is on pause or canceled for them. And it's like, I, I tell everybody, if you know a high school senior, go hug them. Yeah, so I got three of those. Um, so it's funny, I'm actually sitting here at work in my office right now because our whole workforce in Austin, uh, San Diego, Newport Beach and Miami are all remote, 100%. Uh, but I can leave the house, come here, be more isolated and have more social distancing because <laughs> no one here. Uh, and then- Because there's got, nine people in your house. Yeah, that are in the house and that are actually doing online education and everything in between. So when people say like, we, like this stuff's hard. I've been through everything. I've been through, you know, crazy stuff in the military. I've been through 9-11. I've been through 2008 real estate. We've been through- tech booms and busts. We've been through everything we've seen, but no one in the world is a playbook for a global pandemic. Mm -mm. No one in the world has ever seen this. So what you have to do when, when that big of a crisis is happening is you have to stay very thoughtful, very measured, um, because like I've told kids all growing up uh, and all seven of them, okay, if, if you panic, 
Is it going to get better? Is anything positive going to come out of you panicking? Of course not. So then you have to say, when everything is going wrong, you know, when you think of a great athlete on the biggest stage in the world, what do they often say? You know, you're Michael Jordan, you're Tiger Woods. What, what do they say? You're LeBron James. Everything slows down. Everything becomes clear. Their preparation, their readiness, their ability to act allows them to perform on the world's biggest stages when everything matters. You have to make a 12-foot putt. You have to win this game or hit this game-winning shot. Everything calms down. And in the world of business, that should be the goal as well, is there are boards, and boards are made up of people. And people take personal and professional things happen to them in very different ways. When you have an executive team, same thing. And when you have employee bases where someone may be exposed to COVID or someone's got a parent or health issues, or what do I do with my elderly family and how do I keep them protected? Or I've got someone with a bad immune system or higher risk, or I've got unfair density in the city I live in or I've got all these people that aren't paying attention and they think it's just a party to go hit you know, the clubs or go hit the beach or jump on a boat. So all this stuff, the best thing that people can do is to take a breath, to look at what all the issues are. What we did internally for business planning is you always have to be contingency planning. Remember back to game theory and Murphy's law, that which can go wrong will. You can't live in the world of hope. You have to live in the world of reality. And when you're dealing with a business, there's a balance sheet side. And how do you look at what your obligations are and what can be renegotiated? How do you look at, you know, how strong your cash position is or your credit facilities or your factoring lines or anything else? How do you try to do the best you can in an imperfect world to make forward steps and forward progress? Doesn't mean you're done but you have to take steps forward every hour, every day, every week, every month. Then in your contingency, you have to go through every single expense you have. What are fixed? What are optional? Uh, what things are deferrable? What things are needed? How do you think about internet connections, electricity? How do you think about leases? How do you think about every single thing you do, go through every single expense you have and you compare that expense again then to the next wave. What is every customer contract I have? What are absolute obligations? To what extent are any of those obligations gonna be things that people will not honor, not continue? And how much are you gonna potentially lose or have deferred? Then you have to go through deals you had pending. Okay, we already had agreement. We've been working through it legal. We've been working through the paperwork and procurement with our customer. How do we get that piece of paper back? And how do you work with big companies like we do? And no matter how disrupted they are, how can big companies help smaller companies by being less bureaucratic about the th things that they need to do and want to do anyway, so that procurement and legal don't affect the ability for smaller companies to do the things they need to do. And then finally, you have to look at all these options that deal with headcount, which is usually a big thing. You see people working through, am I going to have to do reductions? Am I going to have to furlough? Am I going to have an option where the IRS is going to refund payroll taxes already paid 
so that you can actually put people on family leave? Can you survive with doing nothing different? And what we try to do is we get very, very good in our team of focusing on anything we can control versus things we can't control. And if we can't control it, you have to say, can you even influence it? Because you may or may not be able to. And if you go through your P&L from top to bottom and look at every line item and say, what revenue items do I feel comfortable are going to stay where they're at? And what do I feel is going to be affected? Based on the revenue, what are the cost of goods? And do I have any options of improving those cost of goods? Because at the end of the day, that's going to generate the gross margin you need to offset every other expense that you have. And what is fixed? What is variable? What are things you can defer and live without? What are nice to have, must have? What can be renegotiated? And systematically, line by line, you have to go through that. And that way, by the time you look at your income statement or your P&L, you have gone through all your customers, all your uh, fulfillment and operational obligations, and then you understand what money do I really have to offset? Because the nature of the game is how do I survive? How do I move forward? Because none of us know, is this going to be a 90-day process? Is it going to be 45 days or is this going to be the next two years? So you don't know what you don't know, but that doesn't mean you can't act. You have to act. You have to be thoughtful. You have to be compassionate. You have to do everything under the sun to try to work through in a positive outcome, knowing that, you know what? We are facing the world we are facing. We are on the ground, in the arena, in the trenches, and all of us just being in this together is part of it, but it's not enough. And we don't know if these programs are going to just say, you know what, for 90 days, no one has to pay student loans. No one has to pay auto payments or leases. No one has to pay mortgages, rent, or business leases. The government's going to flood the banking system. They're going to provide 90-day window. They're going to pay off those investors that own your mortgage. They're going to pay off the leases that no one can use. People are looking through their insurances to say, what options do I have? And that's really where you have to be able to be systematic and you have to be able to work with reality. Because I work with big companies. They're probably the most best positioned in the world in some of these cases. They have the most money. Uh, Some have more money than countries, God forbid. But if you can't get anyone on the phone, you can't communicate, or people are just absent. Realistically, we're planning for 90 to 120 days where even the biggest of all companies are dysfunctional, not because they mean to be, but because everyone is getting these, you know, stay in place, quarantine, don't come back. We're working actively on solutions to say, how can we reintroduce everything that's happened back to normalcy by clearing people through temperature and all the location tools and software we have to introduce small groups back, whether it's back to a church, a team, an organization, your friends to have a dinner. Importantly, more importantly, introducing people back to the workplace and having tracing mechanisms of those interactions and how to expand that because we can't just put a 120-day timeout for the world economy. (laughs) 
40% of the country has $400 or less on hand. We don't have the luxury of time. These things needed to be done weeks ago. I know friends that run companies that two weeks ago, they got rid of 60% of their workforce. And then virtually the rest of it earlier this week, because getting 1500 bucks set to people in the month of April or May, while interesting, doesn't do anything. We have to do economic triage, just like we have to do medical triage, and it needs to happen right now. It can't wait. And when you look through the programs being offered and the confusion about what people can access or not, that too adds to the fear, the uncertainty, uh, and people that are all trying to figure out the best way to do the right thing really don't know what levers they can pull, what programs are going to be available, and then how can you make the burden and, and these horrific things that are happening you know, less uh, impactful. Um, and we work with healthcare customers across the country, uh, not the government, but we've done this with Cedar sinai Mount Sinai, Kaiser, Baptist Health, MD Anderson, Houston Methodist, and on and on and on. And right now, things have to be reconsidered in your business. What can you do remote? In medicine, we talk a lot about telehealth and telemedicine and remote optionality. It's very, very important. So you can go back with customers and say, look, we want to help you get more capacity to deal with this problem. We want to help you to virtually triage before you're even physically triaging. We want to help you trace critical equipment. We want to facilitate in-home testing. We have location-based technology now. Remember I said I wanted to reach everyone in the world? We have over 4 billion Funware IDs now. A billion of those devices are active every single month. That's the scale of Facebook, Instagram, we know where you're at. Not only do we know an X and Y with, with a, a little blue dot, but importantly, you're in New York City. You need to know the Z coordinate. What floor of that building are you on? It's not good enough to know that you have someone's location. We now need to deal with geofence policy enforcement, a fancy way of saying technology helping for social distancing or to let you know you interacted with someone that may have been infected or that we're near someone who was near someone else that was infected. And the only way we're gonna be able to do these things is to find brilliant doctors and medical personnel overlaid with technologists. You know, we support some political activities across spectrum. Well, it's still an election year. It's still happening in November. Not quite sure how it's all gonna play out, but it will play out. And as a result, now there's a need for virtual rallies because both sides still need to do these things. So what we're trying to do is to figure out every remote capability we have, every bit of location technology we have, what we know about people and their behavior, and how do we help? Because America isn't Singapore or Taiwan or China, and we're much less likely from a society to be able to dictate. You know, if you're in some of those societies and your phone, suddenly the battery goes out, or you're not pinging in the right geofence, they're calling you on the phone in 15 minutes. And in 30 minutes, someone is showing up as a police or other first responder to your house. Um, there are draconian measures being taken that societally we have never been comfortable with. But now we've done things to say, when we come out of this, how do you prove 
you know, almost like when you think of KYC or know your customer, that you prove identity. Now we need to be able to prove health, just like identity. And we want to facilitate, okay, we've used our Bluetooth thermometer. We fed into our application. We can show that we don't have a fever. We're going to introduce four people into a retail store. We're going to allow them to get back to work. And we're going to have a tracing mechanism. It's almost like sending out an RSVP, except now you can only come into a place when you've been invited. When you're introduced, they have to make sure things are fine. And that's where a combination of technology and healthcare is going to be important. And then we're going to have to see what does the data show? Because right, wrong, or indifferent, you know, if we survive the virus and we solve a problem for humanity, that's great. But if you create more suicides and more devastation because there is no job, there is no income, there is no economy, you know, you and I delaying 90 days of mortgage payments or student loans, uh, what the hell is that really going to do ultimately? And there's going to be economic trade-offs. We've seen this with HIV. We've seen it with diabetes. We've seen it with obesity. We've seen it with heart disease. We've seen it with the flu. We've seen it with everything. And there are economic trade-offs. And it's not a matter of picking right or wrong. I assure you from my time in the military, what do you do? You triage. No one said it's fair. This stuff isn't fair. It never will be. But if you can be reasoned and measured and data-driven and thorough and focused and unemotional to the extent not giving up your compassion, but you have to live in the sense of reality. And I think that that's where leaders can shine. It is the reality of the hard choices we have to make. And it is an opportunity for our country um, to be great, to show off how amazing we are, because we will get through this. There is another side of this. And we will learn painful lessons like we did in 9-11, like we have in every boom and bust cycle we've ever seen. When we lost the space shuttle Challenger, there are devastating consequences to life. And that's part of life. And our responsibility, and hopefully your audience's responsibility in their positions, are to be that beacon that can be a foundation for thoughtfulness to do the best that you can do because there is no optimizing for this problem. This is a heuristics thing where you're doing with it on the fly. Wow. Um I am blown away by the hour that we have spent together and on behalf of the Cool Things Entrepreneur audience and the Association for Corporate Growth audience, Alan, I would like to thank you for being so honest, open and candid and sharing your story in the manner that you did. Uh, I rarely take seven pages of notes for myself <laughs> while I'm conducting interviews, but but I did. And the only word that sort of comes to my mind for people who have tuned in and listened to this episode is we just got a masterclass. And I think that this is one of those episodes that might be worthy of going backwards and listening to it again, because I think your life story on the first part of it was was fascinating. And it was, as we said, it was that combination of, you know, outworking everybody around you with hard work. But then the second half of it, as you talked about building the companies 
and then what we're facing in, in this crisis that we're facing was much more of an example of what I would call you know, sort of a tuned in visionary. And I think we need more of that. And I don't think we see that in everyday life. So thank you for coming in and sharing with us here on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's always enjoyable. Uh, And for everybody on behalf of uh, Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do and the Association for Corporate Growth, thank you to Alan. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it with every one of these episodes. If it wasn't for the audience, there'd be no reason to do the show. Uh, And I do say it every time. Success leaves clues. And in Alan's case, it was seven pages of clues. So, Alan, if somebody needs to know more about you and Fundware, how do they find you? Oh, the best thing to do is we have uh, a general thing with info at funware.com. Actually, I'm on LinkedIn and things of that sort. So uh, we've tried to create some mailboxes because sometimes we do get flooded with things and uh, we're doing our best. Um, I try to be as available as humanly possible in light of uh, the craziness of personal life and everything that we mention. Yeah, that seven uh, kids thing, that's craziness of personal life. <laughs> and is that, tri- uh, is that, that triplets, really is there triplets involved there? Uh, actually, it was uh, twins uh, from uh, my new wife's side and then my youngest daughter on my side. So there was gotcha. four and then there was three and now there's seven. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a big blessing. And it's also uh, a crazy set of permutations with all that's going on. <laughs> awesome. Hey, uh, again, I can't say it enough times. We really, really appreciate your time. And I know for a fact that as soon as we get to return to some sense of normalcy where we get to hold luncheons again, uh, the Association for Corporate Growth will be honored to have you uh, on their stage here in Austin. So uh, thank you very much. I look forward to that day when we can assemble some audiences again. That'd be great. When when you speak, I promise I'll be there. All right. Thank you you again to everyone who tuned in. We'll be back in a couple of days with somebody just as cool as Alan. That one might be hard to do, but I'll figure it out. In the meantime, flex those entrepreneurial muscles. Make sure that you're doing the right thing. Make sure your ladder is against the right wall. And while you're at it, have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.